Welcome to What the If News. I don't know, that might have been too elaborate. I think I really... Bend it, don't break it, you know? Yeah. What the If News. Matt, can you just give us an explanation? Suppose someone's used to listening to What the If oh, show, well, and then right. this shows up in their podcast feed what, what's happening there so with the regular show they get to experience us uh in in the full depth of our deliberation and terror at what the universe can bring uh where we really wallow um in the results of our <laughs> imaginations uh, uh whereas here it's uh short and sweet and we have an actual expert uh on the top of it. there's actual knowledge here yeah little speculation mm -hmm. and would you would you introduce our our expert i would be delighted to so our 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 resident expert uh is soon to be dr uh, gabby panicia a virologist at rockefeller university um here in new york uh, she is surrounded by goldfish um, <laughs> but nonetheless is able to help us out it's just one singular, gigantic goldfish, actually. It's yeah, but that's huge. like 10 goldfish worth of mass, right? He could be like three or four smaller goldfish just sort of moving in a pattern. There was a children's book about that. I think it was written about him. Yeah, that's not right. Would you rather fight one giant goldfish? <laughs> than regular sized goldfish. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Gabby's coming to us uh, in, uh, from Rockefeller University. And uh, rock.edu, rock.edu is their website. They have a lot of awesome information and gabby's been helping us every uh week ish i've been trying i'm trying to get back to week um we had a lot going on lately and my my scheduling abilities got scrambled but we're back and uh what the if news we uh we invite you to share stories with us this is a new new thing we're starting to do is people um share stories that you read and that you'd like a little bit more about a little more uh, information about or understanding about um you don't want to find them in particularly odd places uh things like for instance the new york times which our story comes from this week is a good thing and gabby uh will help us with it so this uh this article came to us from marcia uh, levine of lake worth florida florida in particular <laughs> having a very bad go of it. That's right. That is mm -hmm. an important state for people to be getting information uh, about the virus at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And um, so uh, like many, many Floridians, uh, I believe Marsha is originally a New Yorker. And uh, so uh, sent in an article and asks us to, to get a little background because it's a, it's a fascinating article, but it's not entirely uh, clear um, what the benefit, let's say the benefits of, of it is for us. The headline from the New York Times, uh, and this is by, uh, the author is Catherine J. Wu. Um, and the headline is, a new generation of fast coronavirus tests is coming. So I'm envisioning NASCAR already. I don't know, fast. <laughs> the tests just zoom around in circles all day. Exactly. Uh, and, and I'll just read a little bit of it here, and then Gabby can help us understand going on here. Uh, a new generation of fast coronavirus tests is coming. New technologies like the gene editing tool CRISPR can spot the virus in less than an hour, but it will likely be months before these tests hit clinics. 
Uh, Catherine Wu writes, researchers are attempting to streamline every part of the diagnostic pipeline. One time-saving tactic that's already been rolled out nationwide involves sampling areas other than the nasopharynx. So I'm only three lines into this story and already I'm wrong. Uh, such as oh, swabbing the nostrils or throat or collecting gobs of saliva. Mm. Don't say the New York Times, you know, isn't afraid of uh, just getting there and being as graphic as the Daily News or the New York Post. These tests are painless. <laughs> Reading the articles about them is not. These tests are painless and avoid putting healthcare workers in harm's way, but they aren't always accurate. Unfortunately, this virus doesn't hang around in the nose or throat so much, said Dr. Ravindra Gupta, a clinical microbiologist at the University of Cambridge. To avoid mistakenly declaring infected people virus-free, Dr. Gupta and his colleagues are developing a point-of-care test that can simultaneously screen patients for the coronavirus and antibodies that recognize it. So simultaneously screen patients for both the virus and the antibodies that recognize it, which I do understand right now are two separate tests, right? Yep. Antibodies often start to appear by the second week of infection. Uh, and I'll just uh, read one little uh, last thing here. The, uh, the test cooked up by Columbia University's Dr. Williams and his colleagues might be simpler still. Spit is added to a premixed slew of chemicals, which then gets incubated at 145 degrees Fahrenheit for half an hour. If the tube turns yellow... <laughs> <laughs> He's got the plague. <laughs> if the two, it's just a sentence. You can, can you smell work. anything? <laughs> I am turning yellow. <laughs> if the tube turns yellow, the test is positive. If it's red, negative. So there's no green. Forget green. You know, the best you can hope for is yellow. The test can detect even tiny amounts of the virus, making, making it more sensitive than similar tests and gives false negatives less than 5% of the time, according to a study that has not yet been published in a scientific journal. Dr. Williams and his teams are seeking authorization from the FDA. Gabby, what's, what's going on here? Yeah, so this article is basically trying to talk about some of the new things that are coming out with testing. And so testing has been like really important for a couple of reasons. Back in the very beginning, it was important for us to get a handle on well, how many people are infected, period. Uh, so there was a lot of times where, you know, increased testing revealed an increasing proportion of the population that was infected, way, way, way more people than we thought originally. Now what's really important is for surveillance. So getting a good handle on who has it, you know, who is picking it up in their random day. So for example, me walking around going to lab, you know, back, you know, every day back and forth from lab to my apartment. If I pick it up somewhere, it's important for me to be able to get tested faster and know, you know, when I might have gotten this, and so how in danger are the rest of my coworkers, I guess. Right. And what's the current speed? Current speed? So Rockefeller's a little bit of an exception because we're running them in-house. I think currently some tests can take, just because of backlogs in the systems, especially in places where cases are surging, it can take some people like a week to hear back, which at that point, you're, you know, your life has been kind of nuked. You're just sitting inside. Uh, you might be pretty sick at that point. And then it's like, well, what's the use of telling me if I'm positive? I know I'm positive. I'm miserable. Yeah. So getting people this 
like accessible diagnostic tests that are going to have really, really fast turnarounds are important because in an ideal world, these things would be like able to buy off the shelf, something you could do at home, something that's, you know, just spit in a tube, shake it up, wait 15 minutes, and then you have an answer. That would be absolutely ideal. Right. Or even just like an immediate, like, I mean, I suppose ideally, uh, we, you, you kind of almost, if you could have a, a, like an Apple watch thing an app on or something on your that says oh infected then then everyone you work with in other words if everyone in a workplace had one of these things um it'd be alarming i suppose (laughs) uh, literally but you would at least know now because the problem is you can as soon as you've taken the test now everything that happens to you after you walk out of the doctor's office or the testing place you might have picked it up on your way home from the testing. Yeah, and a lot of this, what these things are trying to do is try to remove any error that could come from the person who's carrying out the test. So for example, if this has to be done in a clinical laboratory, maybe something happens, it'd be pretty rare, but something might happen that messes it up or you get a result that's kind of vague because, I don't know, maybe your spit tube sat out for too long and then the RNA degraded. Just all of the things that could potentially confound this so that they're trying to make these pre-mixed vials that are super easy to mass produce that, again, you spit into it, heat it up, and it's either red or yellow. Um, the one that I thought was super cool was actually described a little bit earlier. It was, it was CRISPR and it glows. Which Yeah, tell us about that. What, what is that? When I first read that, I'm going to be honest, even as a scientist, I had a moment of, how the hell did they do that? Because <laughs> it, 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 it almost seems like a non sequitur of itself. It's like, okay, it's CRISPR, but then it also glows. How did you link that back together? Um, so it's really fun. I think the, te- the technique is called SHINE, which itself is an acronym for Sherlock and Hudson. Uh, it, I don't know. I just know Sherlock and Hudson are also acronyms. So they really just nested the acronyms in that entire thing. Very fascinating. There's some kind of rule about how deep you can go with an acronym. I don't know, but I think they're going to try. They're going to go like Inception, like three layers deep. Yeah, exactly. The acronyms. exactly. But it's, it's really cool. So what it essentially does is it sort of amplifies the RNA. And this can be done at room temperature. This process is, I think that's the one that's called Sherlock, is not really, it's not refined, but people, they, people like these people are trying to work on refining it so it can be done better, a little bit more efficiently so that you don't lose as much RNA. But then the really cool part is the CRISPR part. So you guys may hear like CRISPR-Cas9. Cas9 is the enzyme that it works with, but this isn't using Cas9. This is using Cas13. So Cas13 is just a different variant. And the unlucky it be- one, the unlucky variant. <laughs> it's actually pretty nice in this case because it, uh-huh. it, it has a little quirk. So it recognizes RNA, not DNA. So RNA is the, the genetic material of the virus. DNA is... A little bit more stable, but unfortunately not what it codes its DNA in, or genetic material in. That's a better way of saying that. Yeah. Um, so what it does is it recognizes RNA. And when it recognizes a sequence, it will just start cutting any other RNA it comes across, regardless of whether or not it matches. So what they have in the tube is a fluorescent molecule and a quencher linked together by a little bit of RNA, essentially. What's so a when quencher? Something that blocks it from giving out light. So essentially the fluorescent molecule would be emitting light constantly and the quencher is just like, no, 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 none of that. So while they're, while they're bound together by that little length of RNA, nothing's really going to happen. But 
when Cas13 recognizes a bit of coronavirus DNA or RNA, it's like, all right, cool, time to go crazy. And it starts cutting all those bonds and releases all these fluorescent molecules. And then the tube glows green. And they mentioned that it will make the tube's contents glow at a wavelength detectable by a smartphone, which I thought was kind of funny. But what the reason for is why they want to make it identifiable by, identifiable by a smartphone is that you could do the test yourself. And that essentially it's not prone to user error. Mm-hmm. That if yeah. for some reason you really, really don't want to accept that this is glowing and you're like, I'm not really sure if this counts as glowing, maybe it's just the light, this will rule it out and be like, yes, that's positive. Yeah, if you've ever used, say, a home pregnancy test, you know that even even things that are designed to have a binary yes/no answer can be frustratingly vague. Um, so it's a probably a good idea to take that decision out of the hands of the user. Oh, and so the glowing is basically like a perfect user interface or graphical, you know, <laughs> indicator. Oh, yeah. And the whole point is, it's not that the glowing has some extra medical value necessarily, but that it's so that the ordinary person can interpret it. Yeah, the glow is a translator. Most people can't read an agarose gel to know whether or not no, I've it's tried. positive. Yeah. <laughs> it's so but glowing, I would run. So if it glows, you've got corona. I guess it feels a little like, I don't know, Star Trek or an Outer Limits episode or something where (laughs) people who are marked, yeah, are are glowing and need to be taken away. It's very sci-fi. The the, um, uh, Alistair Reynolds, one of our favorite sci-fi writers who we had the great fortune to have on the show and hopefully are getting back uh, at some point soon, um, has a series uh, called the Revenger series that he's uh, writing uh, lately in, in one of the first books. Uh, bone silence there there is a whole i have to go back and reread it because um there's a whole thing about uh this alien some sort of alien molecules that glow just like this and some people eat them mm. and then it, we don't know i haven't gotten to the point yet where i understand what yeah that seems timely to, yeah. yeah yeah i think he was onto this so <clears throat> is this gonna are, are we gonna get this this is the problem with science news or, or is this uh, when do we get this so i'm actually not sure i'm trying to figure out the the one that it when it's what is it yellow it's positive that one they're sur- they're currently seeking FDA approval so if right, they get right. that they'll be able to essentially more mass market it and I think that one still has to be done at a clinical lab based on the fact that like it gets incubated at 145 degrees Fahrenheit I don't think many yeah. people have precise ways of measuring that in their home yeah right. so you can't really pop that in the oven it's a little bit unusual. But it's still faster for the clinical lab, so then that would go out to them. As far as the CRISPR one, I'm not actually sure about that. I read the paper, but it didn't say. And by the way, if you're just because I happen to know, uh, back back in our what the if catalog, there we uh, we had uh, Carl Zimmer, one of the great science uh, journalists, who mm-hmm. holds, right, he writes for the New York Times as well. I believe oh, frequently, yeah, yeah. And um, he, we have a whole episode about CRISPR if you want to learn about that. And, it's fantastic. You just search for Carl Zimmer there on the W T I F. Yeah, head of our back catalog. Yeah, what the if dot com is our website. You can go there and you can find all of this kind of stuff. Um, and by the way, since I'm mentioning the website, uh, that is where you can submit your ideas to us. Uh, we have an email address, but by the way, if you just go to what the if dot com on the uh, upper right, right there on the front page, uh, you, the place you can type us a message. Write anything in there. You want to paste a link in there and hit send. 
you're welcome to do that. Uh, lastly, let's let's take. I just want to take one minute, and I feel like I realize you know. Let's have here's here's our editorial section, and Gabby, you I, I noticed you you were feeling very strongly about things that are happening right now. So, what would you like to say to the people? Oh. <laughs> I, I, that, that's it that's it that was my Mic formal drop. statement <laughs> so i'd like to make a press briefing oh, yeah. that's yeah. it yeah exactly I, it's it's just a very frustrating time to be a virologist because you know you you, you mm. read the news and the first wave hit new york because you would expect it to hit new york i mean if you've watched any monster movie like or any disaster movie we're the first to go but yeah it it makes sense whether you know it's Godzilla or COVID, it's going to hit the hubs of the United States. And it's very frustrating that, you know, it kind of got relegated. That's eh, a New York problem. All these states aren't experiencing it. And they did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. And all of the virologists cringed when they opened up too early. And all of us cringed when wearing masks somehow became a political statement. Or there's all this pseudoscience going around of like, it'll asphyxiate you. Like, boy, I work in a mask all day. No, I'm not <laughs> dead. Like, it's it's nonsense, but it's it's like I said, it's very frustrating because you know I I respect the hell out of Fauci for all of this. I mean, like just in general, any scientist that I've heard talking about this, I respect the hell out of them. And it's very frustrating with people are trying to like discredit scientists. And so I guess my where I'm getting at is if we say if we're saying something different than what we were saying at the very beginning of this. It's not because we're attempting to delude you. It's because situations have changed or we've gotten more data. It's a little bit like the weatherman telling you it's going to be sunny on Tuesday and you go out on Friday and it's raining and then you're pissed at them. It's like the conditions have changed. You can't really yeah. hold someone to the same thing. And so, you know, like people who are angry that in the very beginning we said not to wear masks. Well, the reason was because there were not enough masks for healthcare workers. So we were saying don't buy the masks that the healthcare workers need. But, you know, you can wrap a scarf around your face. But now that fabric masks are literally everywhere, there's dudes selling them on the street corners in New York City. Yeah. You can, you can buy them and wear a mask. There's no reason now for you not to. So I guess it's a little bit of give, give us our credit. We're not trying to delude you. No one pays me enough money to go here and lie. Like, I have no higher purpose of just like, you know, the deep state is in my back pocket giving me 20s for every, like, lie I... Yeah, that's oh, that's not what my so job nice. is here. Yeah, yeah That'd right. Be great. Oh. Just if if you could fit the whole deep state in your pocket, it can't be that threatening. <laughs> so, Matt, okay. from a societal point of view, what I like, it's very hard to say. So, this this may be too general for Peter to cast this uh, question aside. But uh, is science under attack in a way we've never seen before? What's or is it now? You know, this is always. Well, the United States in particular has a long history of anti-intellectualism and mm -hmm. also anti-authoritarianism. That is, we don't like being told what to do, and we don't <laughs> particularly like nerds. So <laughs> when nerds try to tell us what to do, it's kind of a perfect storm for Americans not. That's interesting. I think we don't like authoritarianism, and yet we, we will listen to an author authoritarian-type figure who tells us to not listen to authority. Yeah, that's the that's the funny thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I would say, in some sense, there it's a deep seated problem um, within our country, um, going back to its very roots. Uh, but also, the current political climate is a uh, a a 
hyper vigilant version of that. Yeah. Um, and the internet makes it worse too. I, I, my, this is not a question I think that, that we can answer obviously, but I feel like certain things like, um, denying global warming, for instance, there's a profit motive there for some people, for the oil, you know, for any company that has to now, um, whatever, put in pollution controls, you know, it's expensive for them to do whatever. And so there's a reason for them to, to fight back for the tobacco companies when that was, you know, a huge thing. It's like, yeah, it totally makes sense. This is their business. With this, I don't see the profit motive. It's a disaster for the, for everybody, you know. I can't speak to COVID directly, but speaking uh -huh. about the whole anti-vax movement in general, I was started by a dude named, or specifically the anti-vax, like vax, vaccines equal autism thing. Mm. It was started by a dude whose paper is since extremely retracted, which is not evidence of a conspiracy. That means you faked your data so bad they looked at it and went, oh, dude, no one should ever read this ever again. Wow. Uh, and so if you, if you try to find this paper, every copy of it says retracted across it in huge red letters. And he got funding to study a form of autism that didn't exist, then use that funding to fake the study that proved that it existed because he wanted to patent a test for it. So essentially, he mm -hmm. gave himself all of the ways that it would somehow work and just faked all of it and passed it off now as like this huge conspiracy to silence him and what he discovered. And that's really kicked off all of this. So yes, the profit mo motive did start it. And it was one dude trying to patent a test for a form of autism that didn't exist. So, uh, yes. Yeah, interesting. Uh, why is it that authoritarians seem to have a problem with the virus? Or authoritarian-leaning? Like, how is it that, uh, forget the, pre the United States, the president of the United States, uh, the president of Brazil, right? Yeah. The pre uh, all over the world, these, these guys... Right. It's not, it's not the virus. It's that scientists are a rival form of authority oh, and huh? the dangers of the virus are such that the scientists are, are natural people to go to, to talk to about it. And authoritarians can't handle, um, any other source of authority. It's the same reason they attack the media, um, is, uh, any, anything that, uh, is, is a different route than them, um, is unacceptable. Interesting, and they don't see beating the virus as a win as a worthy, winnable. Yeah, that's not important. The, the only thing important for an authoritarian is remaining in authority. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, well, thank you, thank you. I enjoyed actually our little extra Washington Week in review here. Punditry, uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, but it is. It's a deep. It's a, the, the virus is bringing up all kinds of crazy things about society and uh, and revealing it in a way. So um, thank you, Gabby. Um, thank you, Professor Stanley of New York University. Do either of you have anything you would like to plug to promote? This is a capitalist society and... Uh, nah. <laughs> Academics, not so good. I'm going <laughs> to shamelessly promote something real quick. I make documentaries, as you know, and I'm making a documentary about a classic piece of technology, a video game, also a, just really a beautiful work of art called Myst, M-Y-S-T. If you've heard of it, if you ever played it, it's pretty cool. If you go to the Myst, 
uh, myst documentary, the mistdocumentary.com, or just look it up. We're running. We're we're having a Kickstarter right now. We're raising funds to uh, make that film, and it's I think more relevant to our audience is is a deep passion of mine is to celebrate people who are unsung. There's all kinds of technologists and uh, artists and places where art and technology have come together over the years that have changed our entire way of being. And we don't know how that got that way necessarily. You know superstars like Steve Jobs and so forth, but there's a lot of other people underneath who played an important role who, many of whom are still around and deserve to have a spotlight. So check it out. Um, my thanks to uh, our listener this week for sharing our story. Marsha Levine of Florida. We hope everything goes okay uh, there in Florida. Get it together, people. Um, yeah. You can share your ideas. And we look forward to uh, hearing them. And don't forget uh, the other end of this week, usually on Fridays, um, what the if show happens. Tune in for that. And my skills as a DJ have been poor of late, meaning <laughs> always. Okay. So I'm going to now attempt, I'm just giving everybody fair warning to hit the what the if news theme. And if it happens, just that's an omen of good news. It's completely useless superstition. Here we go. Good night, everybody. Good, <laughs> <laughs> good afternoon. It's Corona time. <laughs> That was a terrible. Now I got to start it again. Here we go. It's Corona time. <laughs> of course, these days it's always Corona time, whether we like it or not.